Today's scripture comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, well, it is great to be back. Uh, and before I introduce myself, it would be remiss of me not to at least briefly uh, comment on 9-11, uh, especially because it does fall on a Sunday this year. You know, in many ways, today is a very bittersweet day for me. Um, it's a very bitter day because what happened 21 years ago in our city, uh, it just rocked us. Uh, and I know some of you were, were here for that, uh, but it not only rocked our city, but our nation, our world. It, it changed the way that we enter into airports. You know, and so what, what happened uh, on that day was, um, uh, was devastating. And 9-11 um, in many ways is also deeply personal to me because, and, and Pastor Gene, because on that day we uh, actually lost a good friend of ours and uh, who worked in the World Trade Center. And I know that, um, you know, whenever someone dies, you're supposed to say nice things about them. But, you know, our friend Andy, uh, he was really special. And to this day, we, we have like this hole in our hearts, like that he's left us. And, uh, and so in many ways, uh, you know, every time it's 9-11, it's, it's difficult for me not to, to think about my buddy. Uh, but it's also a very sweet day. Uh, today is Pastor Gene's birthday. Uh, so <laughs> you can give it up for him. I was going to say, on this day, 52 years ago, he was born. And uh, uh, if you want to... Uh, He's going to be upset at me that I'm exposing his real age, but uh, if, if you get him a bottle of scotch, half of his age, you'll make him a very happy man. Um, if we haven't met yet, and, and you're wondering, is this dude another guest speaker? My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, yeah, it, it's been a while. Uh, uh, before I explain a little bit as to why I haven't uh, preached in a, in a bit, um, I did want to take this opportunity to also thank our guest speakers our Puerto Rican uncle, Edwin Colon, and all the other guest speakers that we've had over the past few months. It's important for you not only to hear one, two, or three voices, but it's important for you to hear different voices preach on the Word of God. And so I'm really grateful for all the guest speakers that we've had. Uh, but if you're joining us for the first time, or if you've come like in the past two, three months, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, a part of the reason why I haven't been speaking is because I had to take my preacher hat off and put my commercial real estate broker hat on. Uh, about seven weeks ago, we were informed by the Stewart Hotel that it had been sold, and we just had a few months to find a new place. And so uh, we've been scrambling throughout the city, canvassing different spaces for us to, uh, to make a new home. Uh, basically, from 33rd down to 30th is going to be massive renovations that are taking place. Some of the tallest buildings in our city will be here in the next five to 20 years, uh, including uh, the Stewart Hotel. 
And so that's why we're moving to a different venue next week and the week after, because uh, they're going to be having some final meetings here as they close their doors. Uh, but we will be opening up our doors on 37th and 7th, and we'll give you uh, an update as to when that grand opening will be. Uh, the good news is we, we will have that space for 10 years. So no more jumping around to different venues, no more setting up and tearing down. It's, it's actually a place that we'll call home. And, and 10 years is crazy. I, we were doing the contract and I was like, oh my goodness, my oldest is gonna be like a junior or senior in high school in 10 years. And so that made me feel very, very old very quickly. But uh, a newcomer came last week and she thought I was 28 years old. And so <laughs> in 10 years, I'll be 38 with a lot of gas in the tank. All right, praise the Lord for Korean skincare. All right, uh, roadmap for the next few weeks, actually the next few months till Christmas, uh, we're gonna be doing a, uh, we're gonna be taking a look at Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series that we are in calling From Embers to a Flame. Now, I don't know if you've ever made a campfire before or uh, you know, play with the fireplace at your parents' living room, but anytime you make a fire, it's only a matter of time before it becomes embers. And similarly, that's the case with our faith. You know, there are peaks and, you know, Youth group, college, you're on fire for God. And then there are times where you're down in the valley and, and your faith has become embers. And by the way, that's normal. Uh, we're not always perpetually on, you know, ablaze for God. But what happens when we become an ember is that you have to fan it in order for it to become a flame again. And, and actually, Paul uses this language to Timothy to fan and to flame his faith and his gifts. Uh, and so that's why we're calling it from embers to a flame. And I know that after the past few years that we've had, we all kind of feel like that. And so that's why we're doing this series basically up until Christmas. So let me just put some context and some teeth on this letter by first saying that, especially if you're new to Christianity, the Apostle Paul wrote half the New Testament. But the final thing that he ever wrote was this letter to Timothy. Now, any time a man or a woman is about to die and they're uttering their final breath, you should listen to what they have to say because it's probably pretty important. And they might be giving you instructions on what they would want you to do before they die. And so as we take a look at Paul's final breaths, his final words, uh, I want us to pay careful attention to what he might also have to say, not only to Timothy, but also to you as well. So take a, take a look with me at verse 2, and it says this. To Timothy, my dear son. Now I just want to pause here for a moment because that phrase, my dear son, is chock full of meaning. This is an incredibly loaded statement that Paul is making here. And actually, in his letter to Titus, he says something very similar when he says this. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Now, at first glance, when you hear Paul using this kind of language, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't really jump out at us. But I want you to take a step back for a moment and consider who Paul is for us to un understand and appreciate what he's really saying. Paul never got married, never had sex, never had any biological children. Now, with that context, how is it that a person that never got married, never had sex, never had his own kids, how is it that he can refer to both Timothy and Titus as his sons? 
And the reason why Paul is able to use this kind of familial language is because the moment you become a Christian, uh, in the words of the, the great streetcar racer and philosopher Dominic Toretto, you become family. When you enter into a relationship with God, you enter into a relationship with his people. And so there's this whole new social network that you inherit. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew 12, 50, he says this, for whoever does the will of my father, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so here again, Jesus reconfigures our understanding of what we think family is. So it's no coincidence that in the first century world, the earliest Christians then began to refer to one another as brother and sister. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you because it's common nomenclature for us to say things like, what's up, bro? Like, that's very colloquial talk. But I want you to know that in the first century world, that, that was a very alien and foreign concept. In fact, it was so alien and foreign to call one another brother and sister that when the first century Christians started marrying their brother and sister, the outside Greco-Roman world was like, Oh, so to be Christian means you're incestuous. And then they started doing things like, yeah, we also eat flesh and drink blood. And then they were like, okay, so you're incestuous cannibals. Like that's what, Christi that's what it means to be Christian. But of course, what was taking place here was a revolution. And what Jesus was saying here is basically that the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of your ancestors. And he's introducing us to a new type of family. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking with uh, a brother in our church who had uh, become Christian. Uh, he did not grow up in the, in the faith. He did not grow up in the church. And he, he became a Christian in his 30s. And we were, uh, on a nicer day, we were out in Central Park and we were having a picnic. And um, he was sharing with me how... Um, he said something very profound with me, and he shared with me that, and he said, you know, Aaron, this, this is the first time I've ever been in a social setting without my work family. Like happy hour, it's like with work coworkers. Like hanging out, it's, it's with coworkers. This is like the first time I've, I'm hanging out with people that I don't go to work with. And I was just so blown away by that as someone that grew up in the church. So I talked with someone else who uh, became a Christian in our church in his 30s, didn't grow up in the church either, so very brand new to the faith. And I said, like, check out what so-and-so said. And, and he responded by saying, well, if you're a transplant in New York City, this is normal. Like, work is your family. But for these two brothers, all of a sudden, the moment they became a Christian, overnight, as it were, they gained a whole new social network of not only friends, but family. The moment you enter into a relationship with God, you also enter into a relationship with his people. And the reason why this is so, so important is because of how much you weigh. Every one of us has stepped on a scale and we know our body weight, but it's not only your body that weighs something, but it's also your feelings and emotions as well. The book of Proverbs, it says that anxiety in a man's heart, it weighs him down. So just talk to anyone that suffers from chronic anxiety, stressful work environments, stressful families, broken relationships. 
Talk to anyone that suffers from chronic anxiety, and they feel a ton of weight on their shoulders. Now, throw in a pinch of loneliness, dash of fear, ounce of depression. Now imagine the kind of weight that this person is carrying. It's far more than just our body weight. And so my question to you is when someone walks in through those doors and they feel this ton of weight on their shoulders, where are they going to get the support from? You know, if you've been in any older buildings in New York City, you know that there are always pillars and columns everywhere. Why are there pillars and columns? Those pillars and columns are there to support the weight of the building. And if you don't have a village here in New York City, our city will eat you up. I've seen too many people come in in their 20s excited about working as a lawyer and doctor and by their 30s, I don't even know who they are anymore. If you do not have a strong village in our city, you will not survive and you will lose yourself. And so we are called to be here as pillars and columns to support not only your highs and ups, but also your lows and your darkest valleys as well. But in order for this to happen, we need to have a family mindset uh, in our culture. Now, this is a challenge for us as modern Westerners because the way that you're catechized, discipled, and trained to think is as individuals, not as a collective unit. So I don't know if any of you have seen Lulu Wong's The Farewell. Uh, if you haven't seen it, starring Aquafina, does a lot of like juxtaposition between the East and the West, family dynamics, uh, suppressing emotions versus expressing emotions, the individual versus the collective. One of the fascinating things about the farewell, if you watch it, is that there are very few scenes where it zooms up on one individual. Watch the movie again. In almost every scene, there's like four, five, six, seven people in in the span, in the lens of the camera, and it's because the directors are trying to emphasize the collective unit versus just the individual. And so there's a scene where Uncle Hyben is talking to uh, Billy, who's played by Aquafina, and Billy's this, you know, all-American girl, New Yorker, and, and here's what Billy's uncle says to her. Billy, there are things you misunderstand. You guys moved to the West long ago. You think one's life belongs to oneself. But that's the difference between the East and the West. In the East, a person's life is part of a whole, family, society. Now, I wanna, I wanna just pause right here and just say there are things about Eastern tradition being a part of the collective whole. There are things about that that I don't like. Like, I don't wanna be a baker just because my dad's a baker. Like, I want to be able to forge my own story and my own destiny, and I love that about individualism. But there are things about individualism that I hate as well. In his article in The Atlantic called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake uh, a few years ago, David Brooks talks about how in Gambia, average household, 14 people. In Mexico, your average kinship group, 70 people. But in America, we have this weird concept of the nuclear family Two parents, two and a half kids, one dog, and a white picket-fenced house. And that's our understanding of our support system. Now, there are many advantages to the nuclear family, which, which sort of arose in the 1920s and 50s with the Industrial Revolution. You don't have to deal with the baggage of other people, a lot more freedom, less drama. So lots of advantages to the nuclear family, right? But a lot of disadvantages as well, right? So, 
uh, 54% of Americans say that they suffer from chronic loneliness on a day-to-day -day basis. Your average American says that they only have two close friends. Two. Okay. Opioid use up, loneliness up, anxiety up, depression up. And so there are lots of disadvantages to our individualistic culture uh, as well. And so whether you agree with what Brooks is saying or not, with whether the nuclear family was a mistake, here's what we can all agree on. The nuclear family is quickly expiring. Less and less people are getting married. People are getting married later in life and less and less people are having kids. And so even if you're pro-nuclear family, the truth of the matter is it's only a matter of time before it becomes like the minority instead of the majority. And so my question to you then is this, where are you going to get your pillars from? Where are you going to get your columns from to support the weight and the life of uh, who you are? So this is why I like it when Paul says in verse 3 to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now, Paul, again, did not have a nuclear family, but he had sons and daughters, Timothy, Titus, and he treated them like family, like they were his own. The greatest gift that you can give to another person is not just taking them out to eat or a fancy trip. One of the greatest gifts you can give to another person is simply by saying to them, I'm praying for you. What are you doing when you're praying? You're advocating for them. Like, I'm going to talk to God on your behalf. <laughs> it's like, thank you. It's like the greatest thing you can do for me, more than anything else. And here, Paul is saying night and day, night and day, I'm committed to doing this for you. Just like some of your grandmothers might do for you. Paul is saying that he's going to do that for Timothy. And, and I love that. I need that. Like some of you, I did not grow up with a nuclear family. My youth group pastor in high school told me to run away from home. That was his wisdom and counsel to me. You need to get out of that house. And it was during that difficult season of my life that my church family, and what is the best expression of God's family? It's the local church, right? It was during that time my family, my church family, they hugged me cried with me, they encouraged me, they rebuked me, they challenged me, step up, they helped me grow, they helped me laugh. They helped this kid that was once very loud, who had all of a sudden become very quiet. They forced me to tell my story, even though I didn't want to. They kept poking and prying into my life, <laughs> no space. They wanted to know me. They saved me. They were my pillars, my columns. Do you have that in your life? And are you being a pillar and column to other people in your life as well? At our worst, the church, we are a highly dysfunctional family. Ugly bride. Crazy drama. We are no different than any other family. But at our best, you cannot beat us. We are the oldest, greatest, biggest, most compassionate, hospitable, loving, grace-filled, forgiving, kind fraternity and family in human history. At our best, nothing compares to it. 
And if Jesus loves us through the good and the bad, when we're beautiful and we're ugly, we have no right to be an inactive participant in this family. Anne Rice is an author that many of you know for her uh, Vampire Chronicles. She converted to Christianity later on in her life and then deconverted because of her church experiences. And Rice says this, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I'm, I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian. Amen. Now, anytime you hear the story of someone that feels very burnt and has left the church, you always lead with compassion. You always lead with love. You always do a ton of apologizing. And you say, I'm so sorry that we failed you as a family. But after you lead with compassion and you apologize and you love on that other person, you gently point them to passages like Matthew chapter 1, which is Jesus' family tree or genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, first sermon I've ever preached on. It's like a laundry list of names you can't even pronounce. It's like, why would you preach on a text like that? Well, it's because behind every name, much like every name etched on a tombstone, behind every name is a story. And when you take a look at this laundry list of names of Jesus' family tree, you see stories of murderers, rapists, adulterers, polygamists, corrupt politicians, liars, and, and the list just goes on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, it culminates at the very bottom with, and the birth of Jesus Christ. And you're like, why would you associate yourself with this group of people? Like, why not with like Queen Elizabeth and royalty and nobility and the elite and the intelligentsia and the rich? Like, why, why this laundry list of people like this? Why associate yourself with this kind of people? I'll give you an example. I do a ton of premarital and marital counseling. One of the common themes is this. I love my fiance or I love my spouse. Their family, psycho. Like, I don't want anything to do with them. Like, I'm willing to move to the other side of the country if I have to, because I do not want to associate with this group of people. Like, they're nuts. I love so-and-so, but like, I don't know what to do because they're crazy. But of course, if you really, really love that person, when you get married, it's not just two people that you're marrying, but you're marrying to their family, right? And so if you love that person, you're entering into all the family baggage and drama that there is. And you know what? Jesus willingly associates himself, knowing all of your mess, drama, the dark secrets that you have that no one else knows about, your history, the things that you've done that you want to put under. He has gladly associates himself with us. And the reason why he did that is to renew us, refine us, forgive us, to tell us how much he loves. He's here to be our elder brother and to pave a way to reconcile 
uh, us to God, uh, our Father, as well. And if this is the way that Jesus is to us, to you, we kind of have to be that way to one another. Do you see the logic behind that? And the more you become older and more mature in your faith, as you take a list of those names on Jesus' family tree, yeah, you might not be a murderer, but you're so pissed off and bitter at someone. Right? Yeah, yeah, you might not have done adultery or something like that, but you, you do like crazy struggle with lust. We had a marriage seminar yesterday, and I was asking one, uh, one person, how, how's the seminar going for you? And the joke, of course, like when you go to a marriage seminar, is like you, you, you elbow your spouse and like, go pay attention. Like you, you need to hear this. <laughs> That's like the joke, right? But I was like, so how's the, how's the seminar going? You know what she said? She goes, I suck. She didn't say my husband sucks. She was like, I suck. Like, I, I got to get better. Like, I, there's stuff that I need to work on. And the more you mature in the faith, it's no longer, oh, those kinds of people. Instead, you're like, oh, that's, like, that's me too. I need to be healed. I need forgiveness of sins. I need to be restored and reconciled. Now, if you are not a part of the family of Jesus, just know that every organization and company out there, they're going to suck you into their family. Your alma mater, when it hits you up for money, welcome, welcome to the family, you know, pay up your work, suck you into their family. We want you to live here, eat here, sleep here. CrossFit, it's a family they're trying to suck you into, right? Every organization or company is trying to suck you into their family. And here's my question. Would your boss ever die for you? Would your company that you're sacrificing your life for, you think your company would ever sacrifice its life for you? You think that Jim would pour out sweat for you the way that you pour your sweat out for it? Mm -mm. But we have someone that says, you're, you're a part of our family, I will die for you. And in fact, I have. And so will everyone else here. Because that's the culture of our family. This is our gospel. This is what we believe in. This is what we do. This is what, who we are. And I dream about a community. And I know that, you know, someone came up to me after the like, every summer I hear is about community. I dream about a community where we can do this. Okay, I'm not going to do this experiment because it, it flopped in the first service, but I asked everyone, if you just moved here to New York City, can you raise your hand? But I forgot that, like, if you're Asian, you're super passive and no one raises their hand, but... If, if you've moved here, I'm not going to ask you to do it. If you've moved here in the past few years, like who's going to be your pillar? Who's going to be your column when you're experiencing anxiety? Who's going to do that for you? Work? This is what we're called to do. This is who we are called uh, to be. So I just want to close by saying this. Um, who, very tangibly speaking, uh, you know, when a church gets big, that's great. But if this big community, it doesn't act like family, that's not a good thing. We are not here to grow wide. We are here to grow deep. And the only way that can happen is if we act like family. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Who are some people that you can do that for this week where you can honestly care for them? I know that in our city, we measure ourselves by where we work, how much money we have, how much stuff we have. 
But what if we thought of ourselves by, by gauging ourselves according to different metrics, where we don't measure ourselves by what we have or how much money we make, but we measure ourselves by how many hearts we touch. That's how we gauge ourselves. Whose hearts can you touch this week? Simple text, I'm praying for you. Hey, can we meet up for lunch? Inviting someone in. If you're new, you, always, you almost always remember the first person that was super friendly to you. Who can you be friendly to? If you want to be a part of this family, we have to be like Jesus who opened up his arms to everyone to come. Who are some of those people that you can do that for today and going forward? If we want our faith to go from an ember to a flame, we need to be plugged in and connected to one another. And as you serve uh, one another, as you love other people, you will quickly see your own ember grow into a flame as well. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says to consider others better than yourselves. But before we consider other people better than ourselves, we first have to consider others. So help us to do that just the way that you do. In your name I pray, amen.